Tim Drake from the future returns to tamper with history. Join us as we take a look at Super Sons of Tomorrow, Volume 3 of the Batman Newspaper Strips Collection, and then we take a look at Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 5, straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. All right, well, we lead off this episode with Super Sons of Tomorrow. And this is a three-way crossover collecting issues 11 and 12 of Super Sons, Superman issues 37 and 38, and Teen Titans number 15. And the basic plot is that Tim Drake from the future, who we talked about a few weeks ago appearing in Detective Comics, that he returns to once again try and save the future by murdering someone. In this case, it's murdering 10-year-old John Kent, a.k.a. Superboy, and he starts out by disabling uh, both Batman and Superman because he is future Tim Drake, a.k.a. future Batman, and then goes after Superboy properly, and the Teen Titans get in the way. Well, what did I like about this storyline? Well, I think that like the storyline in Detective Comics, it did really do a good job highlighting uh, the nature of a key relationship. In that case, that between uh, Robin and uh, Superboy and the way that their partnership helps them and makes them better people. It also suggests that that partnership, that that friendship could cut against or change uh, some of what has been shown as the DC Universe's future, suggesting that these portrayals are only a possible future. They are a shadow of things that might be, not necessarily of what has to be because of the way they relate to each other. And I think that's a really good idea. Uh, at the same time, if you were a fan of the Young Justice comic series from the 1990s, you get a bit of a treat here, as uh, we see that uh, Tim Drake is Batman in this timeline, is being uh, pursued and followed by The Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman, who are Connor... Uh, Cassie and uh, Bart uh, from the uh, Young Justice uh, comic series in the 1990s. Uh, so that that is nice. Where I think the story has problems is that uh, I think that the idea that you could bring Tim Drake back, you know, after the Detective comic storyline, where essentially he was doing the same thing, uh, but with Batwoman is really going to the well uh, too often and way too soon after the last time. Uh, I also thought he was a little bit more annoying in this one. He doffs the Batman outfit early on in this uh, 
story to to take on the identity of Savior, who is going to save the universe and everything from bad things happening by messing with the timeline and killing people. The Teen Titans are also a bit of a problem in this book. Uh, the, ti- uh, the Teen Titans actually end up uh, dividing against one another uh, on the entire uh, question of uh, cooperating with a Savior after uh, Superboy uh, is essentially driven by Savior to a point of giving off this great uh, solar explosion, which was the reason that he had this solar flare power, which he couldn't control and was eventually going to lead to killing uh, millions of people. And uh, Savior triggered this so that he destroyed the Teen Titans Tower. And the Titans end up divided over whether to follow Tim Drake or not, with uh, two going with Tim Drake and three not going with Tim Drake, but trying to catch up to Robin and Superboy to give them time. And even what they're fighting over, because they do get Drake to agree to uh, not kill Superboy, it's all very vague. There's a lot of heroes fighting heroes for no good reason. Problem with Superboy is resolved, but having followed his story through Super Sons and also through the Superman and Action Comics story, I don't think that this problem was really developed enough. It seems like the whole issue was both raised and solved within the confines of this book. Now it's time to head back to IDW's Library of American Comics and their final collection of Batman, Silver Age, Dailies, and Sundays covering 1969 to 1972. Uh, though I think we have to kind of put an asterisk on that Sundays part, but we'll talk about that in a second. Batman had had a newspaper strip during the Golden Age for about three years and then saw a revival of the strip with the popularity of the 1966 Batman uh, TV series. And the newspaper strip actually outlived the TV series and took on some different changes in tone. This book contains Batman strips going from May 31st of 1969 to August 26th of 1972. However, the Sunday strips were discontinued in July of 1969, so you don't have too many of them. Now, this book does begin with a story that uh, picks up some plot threads from uh, a story that really started back in Volume 2, where a criminal stole Bruce Wayne's identity. And in the course of that, Bruce Wayne's double dated a woman whose family used to be rich, but is now uh, just socially prominent, even though they don't have any money. Her name was Paula Vanderbroke. Such a great name for a character who's, well, broke. At any rate, Bruce is back in his old life, and uh, she expects him to marry her. Unfortunately, Bruce doesn't have any interest 
in marrying Paula. So she sets out for revenge on him because he dared refuse to marry her. And so she and her weak-minded brother uh, set out on a series of crimes. And she uses the caverns that uh, their grandfather used to smuggle into Gotham in order to rob Bruce Wayne. And she's actually able to carry off a couple multi-million dollar robberies against Bruce Wayne. And in the course of those robberies, she nearly gets herself and her brother killed at least a couple of times. And of course, she ends up discovering uh, Bruce Wayne's true identity of Batman. And she has plans for vengeance with that. This is an interesting strip. In on one way, Paula's just absolute monomania and how insanely focused she is on revenge is itself a bit entertaining and interesting. That said, this story actually goes on from May 31st to December the 25th, and so there are some repetitive bits uh, in there in terms of some of the uh, robbery attempts. And there's also a whole sequence with Batman actually considering the idea of allowing Paula to get away with her crimes in order to keep his uh, secret identity secret with Dick arguing against it. it well, it's an interesting morality uh, situation with Robin actually being the moral compass. I have trouble believing Batman giving it as much consideration as he does. Of course, per the Silver Age conventions, when a villain learns the hero's identity, that character is ultimately doomed. So it's not much of a spoiler to say that Paula does end up dying. Though it's in a particularly strange and gruesome way, which I won't explain. And that leads into the next story, where it's almost like the writer uh, intentionally gives Batman some comeuppance. Because in the December 25th script, when Robin comments on Paula's death, Batman says, A life of crime invites such tragedies, Robin. And then in the December 26th script, Batman is hit in the back square with a wrecking ball from a crane because the crane operator wasn't paying attention. So make of that what you will. At any rate, Batman ends up in a really precarious situation. His back is broken and he needs surgery, but the only surgeon who can help him lives in Mexico and refuses to fly on an airplane. Well, folks, this is a job for Superman, who comes into the strip as a guest star, providing some super-powered assistance uh, to get the doctor to Gotham City and do other things to help uh, with Batman's recovery. He also goes undercover pretending to be Batman so that uh, the criminals of the city won't just decide to go hog wild knowing that Batman's out of action. It's a good story. It makes really good use of Superman. In some ways, it does call to mind some of the uh, 1940s radio episodes of Superman, so I like this story quite a bit. Next up is The Circus is Still Not for Sale. 
And uh, this story ran from March 20th to September 7th of 1970. And it involves Batman and Robin helping the owner of a small circus who is receiving some very hostile uh, threats in order to get him to sell the circus. This is actually a pretty standard story, and there are a lot of points where this drags on. Uh, it goes nearly six months, which feels too long for this uh, sort of story. It's not bad, but it does feel a bit padded. One reason for this, though, is that uh, there was a change in writers in the middle of the uh, of the run of the script. On uh, July 18th, 1970, Whitney Ellsworth, the longtime writer of the Batman strip and previous writer of the Superman strip, uh, stepped away. And Nelson Bridwell became the new writer. So it may have been padded out a bit to give Bridwell the chance to plan for his own stories, which would begin uh, with Everything Will Be Different which runs from September 8th, 1970 to January 8th, 1971. And this takes the events of the comic book where uh, Dick Grayson goes off to college and Batman moves out of uh, the Batcave and out of uh, Wayne Manor as Bruce Wayne to the center of the city to start Victims Incorporated. And one of the first people to come in is a mother concerned about her runaway son. And uh, he ends up teaming up with Green Arrow because the kid has run away to Green Arrow's home city. This is a pretty good story. Green Arrow is a really solid guest character in this story. And it's got a lot of then-contemporary issues in terms of violent radicals on campus and how they try and get uh, people involved and other people to take the fall for them. And, and uh, Robin does end up playing a role in the story. And uh, there's also some setup for the next uh, storyline, uh, which would run from January 9th, uh, 1971, to April 14th, 1971, and this one would be I Am Man Bat, and it is about Kurt Langstrom, who has been changed into Man Bat, and wants Batman's help to change him back. And he is somewhat annoyed by Batman no longer being in the Batcave. And he actually stows away in the back of the Batmobile, hoping to get Batman's assistance. And the story doesn't end with a resolution. And it's kind of left to dangle until later on in the year. But it makes a good beginning and it does uh, set things up for the eventual resolution. Uh, and uh, then uh, we get into Too Many Riddles, Too Many Villains, which ran from April 15th to October 5th of 1971. And this was just a really fun story, because essentially you have 
all of these villains um, who have gotten together to thwart Batman, with the Riddler seeming to be the front person for the group because riddles are being used to set the stage. And they're using actually quite a few, like Lewis Carroll, uh, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, those sort of riddles. So they're a little better than the sort of riddles you would get on the TV show, with a bit more cleverness if you don't know all of uh, the Lewis Carroll answers. However, Alfred does and is able to provide that sort of assistance that Robin generally provided like in the comics and on the TV show. And it's great to see so many villains in the strip. And it is, of course, surprised that there is a Mr. Big behind it who's actually a villain who has not been seen uh, at this point in the comics for quite a few years. This was, uh, like I said, a very fun script. The one thing I'd criticize it for is that it really, there's no real explanation for how all of the city's uh, villains, you know, we're talking about the Joker, Penguin, Riddler, all of these very strong criminal personalities take a back seat to this person. And it's never explained how they all uh, came to do that. Though, of course, you could say the same thing about Tom King's War of Jokes and Riddles. It's never explained why all of these uh, villains thought they had to pick a side in this particular war. But that said, this is a 1971 comic strip story, so I'll give it some slack on that, particularly since I think they did do a really good job with the villains, and they were pretty clever with who the Mr. Big was and introducing that into the story. I also like that we got to see some Batgirl in this book, which uh, we this is the only story we see her in so that was that was nice to see her in this one anyway uh then we get to uh the hideous newlyweds and the plot is that Kirk Langstrom and his fiance are getting married and sending out invitations however Kirk has not been cured, and Batman reveals that he is still Man-Bat. And then we get the shocking reveal that his uh, wife-to-be is, I guess, Woman-Bat? So if you're a bride who's ever tried to cover up anything at a wedding, you can just look at the bright side and say, at least I didn't try and cover up the fact that I was a half-human, half-bat creature. This one's weird and silly, but it's a it's a pretty fun story. Next up, we have The Secret of Grandma Chilton's Scrapbook. And uh, this one ran from November 5th to January tw- of 1971 to January 28th of 1972. And uh, in this story, the son of Joe Chill discovers that his dad was the criminal who killed Bruce Wayne's parents, and also finds through the scrapbook that Bruce Wayne is really Batman, and that uh, through Bruce Wayne's hunt for uh, Joe Chill, that Joe Chill was killed. Though he wasn't killed by Batman, uh, the newspaper strip remains faithful to the comics, which portray a situation where 
Batman frightens Joe Chill, and he runs and tells some of his criminal buddies, Oh no, Batman is after me. Well, why is Batman after you, they ask? Well, because I created him when I killed his parents. And this so enrages his confederates, who are like, We've had so much trouble with Batman, and it's all your fault. And they end up killing him. Nevertheless, uh, Joe's son blames Batman, wants to get revenge and blackmail, and you get a pretty standard story out of that. I like the retelling of the comic book story. The revenge plot uh, isn't uh, so great, but it's not bad, and it's an enjoyable strip uh, overall. And this is probably the last strip that I can really say that about in this book. The strip may have been based on DC Comics characters, but it was syndicated by the Ledger Syndicate. And the Ledger Syndicate and DC got into a dispute. So Ledger decided, you know what, we're going to keep writing Batman, but we're going to bring our own artist on and our own writer. So they had Bridwell's scripts through January 28th and used them, but they had their own anonymous artist do it, uh, do the art on them. And after that, their own anonymous writer took over the writing chores. No one knows who wrote or drew the rest of, of the book after January 28th. And I know the reason why. If I'd had anything to do with this, I would not have uh, told anyone. One of the nice things they do with the reprint is in the first part of the book that you can see the art that the uh, regular artist Al Plastino had uh, drawn for it. And it is much better than it, what ended up uh, running for the uh, uh, strips through January 28th. Uh, January 29th, we get the story Dick Grayson Kidnapped. This particular story ran until March the 7th of 1972, and it's a pretty simple story. As the title implies, Dick Grayson gets kidnapped and held for ransom, and it's up to Batman to rescue him. The execution of the story is not really good. The dialogue is bad, and... Uh, whoever's writing it is not really clear on who knows whose identity because Barbara Gordon is in this, but not as Batgirl. And like everyone else in this particular section, it's, she's really horribly written. Then we get another uh, series of uh, strips from March the 8th to April the 3rd, of 1972. And this one is Dick Grayson Skyjacked. And this is more a situation where a plane that uh, Dick Grayson is uh, flying on is Skyjacked. And he deals with it. This one is not as badly written as the kidnap story. The art is not very good. And the story overall just doesn't do uh, a lot for me. It's not horrible, but really uh, not worthy of the Batman title. And it's worth noting that uh, Robin does not appear in costume in this story. And then we get to the ultimate indignity. The story, the duo becomes a trio, in which uh, Bruce Wayne informs Dick Grayson that uh, 
they are adding another member to their team, Galaxo. And in fact, they will no longer, they're not bringing Galaxo on to help them. They are actually joining with Galaxo and doing whatever Galaxo wants them to do. And so Batman becomes a secondary character in his own strip. So Galaxo is effectively taking over the Batman strip. Galaxo is kind of a Flash Gordon type character, but on Earth, and he's trying to stop some strange cosmic plot, or it could be an Earth-based plot, uh, and it involves using nuclear weapons. It's a really convoluted, confusing, and not all that engaging uh, story from this point forward. In fact, it really does get so bad that uh, other uh, newspapers which run the Batman strip abandon uh, it until you finally get to the April 26, 1972 uh, issue of Stars and Stripes uh, newspaper. And uh, the editors write in, Batman lovers are going to have to look in some other papers to see how their UG hero makes out. Stripes editors thinks the story and drawing has been too poor to continue since something mysterious happened to the artist that used to do the strip. May 1st, we are going to start running Sesame Street daily instead of Batman. So it got so bad that uh, Stripes said, you know, we just rather run Sesame Street instead. And they even felt the need to put an UG in their comments. And that was actually on April 29th, the last Batman strip in the Silver Age published in the United States. However, I give the uh, Library of American Comics and the folks at IDW credit for continuing to research and finding that this strip did actually continue to be syndicated overseas for several more months. And they found that uh, the story was continued in the Straight Times in uh, Singapore, which essentially took the entire uh, six daily strips, cut one particular strip out, and I think they also cut a panel and made a single Sunday story. Uh, which took the story all the way through August 26th of 1972. And the book ends still with that storyline with Galaxo unresolved. That's the downside. On the positive side, the story was so bad that I couldn't bring myself to care much about it. But I appreciate the dedication of researchers who are like, we are going to track down the Batman strip even though, as many as we can find, even though it is tripe because it is Batman tripe and it is our job to research it. I salute you for your dedication. Overall, I think the book is interesting. I think most of the strips prior to the whole uh, ledger going off the rails thing were actually pretty good. There were some issues, and we, we've kind of talked about that. But particularly when Bridwell took over, you've got 
a Batman strip that was pretty much everything I would have hoped a Silver Age Batman strip would be. And I won't judge the, uh, the book too harshly based on the latter really poor quality uh, ledger strips because these are really just being published for uh, completists and to have as much as possible because the last strips that uh, DC actually was cooperating on in any way were January 28th of 1972. And like I said, I appreciate the effort for completists. Overall, I will give the book a rating of somewhat classy. While the ledger strips towards the back have some issues, and you do have uh, some moments when uh, Whitney Ellsworth was writing it, where the the stories feel a bit padded, there's a lot there to delight uh, fans of the uh, Silver Age and Early Bronze Age version of Batman. While Al Plastino's art isn't quite as good as Neil Adams or Jim Aparo, it's still pretty solid art overall, and this makes it a fun and appealing read. So particularly if you've got the first couple volumes, this one is a good one to pick up. Now we turn to Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 5, Twilight of the Guardians. And uh, there are six issues in this book. We get two stories. There's a two-issue story and then a four-issue one. The first one is Mind Games, which is actually a team-up between Superman and Hal Jordan. And this goes back to uh, the recent Superman volume we reviewed, uh, which involved Superman meeting up with Parallax. And... uh, and also Sinestro, and how Jordan is following up on that in this issue. And it appears that Parallax is back and is in control of Superman, which leads to a fight. The story is actually pretty good. It has a little bit of a twist, and you do get a bit of an exploration of the relationship between Superman and Hal Jordan. It's not a great story, but it it was okay. Then the next one we have is Twilight of the Guardians. And essentially, uh, you have a few Guardians who are helping out uh, the Green Lanterns, and then you have some that are scattered throughout the galaxy. Well, the controllers go ahead and they kidnap all of the remaining Guardians. And it's up to the Green Lantern Corps to go and rescue them. Now, there were some things I liked about the story. Uh, you had, for example, a husband and wife uh, guardian of the universe, which is not something I'd seen before, and I kind of I kind of enjoyed that, and I liked those two characters. Uh, they also had a kid from Zundar, uh, which is kind of a beak-faced uh, people, uh, who had a long-time lantern who was disgraced. Their ring, though, ended up going to Zundar, and this uh, Zundarian girl was recruited into the Green Lantern Corps. And she has so much energy, and you don't get to see much of her, but she really looks like a lot of fun uh, as she's going through training. I think what they were going for with the story uh, was really this sense, uh, because you get all of the Earth-based uh, 
traditional Green Lanterns who've been around for a while. Uh, you've got Guy Gardner, you have Hal Jordan, you have John Stewart, and you have Kyle Rayner all teamed up, you know, like you, you're watching an old Western and they're going to have a showdown with the controllers. And I think they were trying to build that sense of camaraderie, that sense of team. I don't think it really works um, as well as they were going for, even though I can see what they were going for. And even the controllers as villains, they're, they're really just deep into continuity and uh, they're... Uh, quite a few little talky bits that, that just don't really work at all for me. And the way it ends really does point to something with Robert Vendetti's uh, run on the Green Lantern Corps. It's this tendency, and I think, you know, you saw it with... Um, with uh, Kyle Rayner no longer being the, uh, the uh, White Lantern and becoming a Green Lantern again. This idea of trying to restore old status quos. And I, I think as an exercise for the whole story, it really was not all that worthwhile. So this was not the worst thing in the world, but I'm going to give Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern uh, Corps Volume 5 Twilight of the Guardians, a rating of not classy. To recap, uh, we gave Super Sons of Tomorrow a rating of not classy, as it repeats a plot from Detective Comics Volume 5. Doesn't really add anything interesting other than some good insight into the relationship between Damien and John while also showing the Teen Titans to really be a mess and not well put together as a team or as a book. Uh, I would give a rating of somewhat classy to Batman The Silver Age Newspaper Strips Volume 3. Uh, despite some padding in the early strips and despite uh, the uh, syndicator uh, putting out a really inferior quality uh, product towards the end of the book, there's still a lot for fans of the Silver and Early Bronze Age Batman to enjoy. And finally, we gave a rating of Not Classy to Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, Volume 5, Twilight of the Guardians. Not really a bad book, but pretty uneven quality and really a drive towards reestablishing old status quo just for the sake of it. All right, well, that's all for now. If you do have a comment, email it to me, ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy, and be sure and rate and review the show on iTunes. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.